In fact, even if we lived in a predominantly Christian society, we are likely to suffer injustice in some way or another at some point in time. Because of this, we must have a good theology of suffering wrong. We must know how to experience injustice in a way that pleases God and points others to Christ. Whether it be suffering persecution at the the hands of those who hate us, or suffering injustice at the hands of a tyrannical government, there is a right way to respond to suffering. And last time we were here in James together, we began by looking at the proper way to suffer. Again, James is likely speaking to those who were suffering injustice at the hands of the wicked rich men that he rebuked in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. They worked the fields of men who hired them, but their employers did not pay them. They withheld their wages. So here are men, again, who worked hard, back-breaking work, reaping in fields. And and at the end of the day, the the boss says, I'm not paying you. What are you going to do about it? No justice. Well, perhaps these men can go to the courts. But, James tells us these men have the justice system in their back pocket. They, they condemn these righteous men falsely, and depending on how you read the text, even murder them, get false accusations against them to, to kill them, to stop justice from happening. This, this is the height of injustice. You don't receive what is owed to you, and the so-called justice system is rigged. There's no way for you to receive justice on earth. How does the Christian properly respond to such suffering. We are to respond with patience, James tells us. And remember we said that this word refers to being even-tempered or long-tempered. Patience and suffering seems to be the main theme of this section, meaning that everything he is telling his audience is designed to help them in suffering patiently. Now what is so important about patience and suffering? What is the opposite of patience? rashness, impulsiveness. Dear friends, when our patience runs out, we know what that means, don't we? When our patience runs out, we respond to things in a way that we regret, don't we? But we typically don't respond to things in a, in a biblical manner when we respond rashly or impulsively. So James is telling his readers how to respond to suffering patiently in order to please the Lord in our suffering. And then the first point that we saw last week is that we are to patiently anticipate judgment. He said, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And, and he pointed out that we were to fix our eyes on the judgment that would come. And, and why should we do this? Well, he gave us two reasons. There, there's an end of all suffering. When when Christ returns, all suffering will cease. To to know that all suffering will cease helps us to patiently endure. But also, justice will be administered. Even the wealthiest, most powerful men on this earth cannot buy justice and the judgment. Justice will be administered. So that was the first point. And this evening we will cover the second thing that, that James tells us we must do in order to patiently endure suffering. And this point goes very well with the, the hymn that we just sang. 
The second thing James tells us is that we must stand strong. Verse 8, he says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now to establish means to strengthen. We, we are to strengthen our hearts. Douglas Moo says, What is commanded is firm adherence to the faith in the midst of temptations and trials, as they wait patiently for their, for their Lord to return, believers need to fortify themselves for the struggle against sin and with difficult circumstances. We have an example of this type of strengthening in our Lord. Luke writes in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, about Christ, when the days drew near for Him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That, that word set is the same word to establish or to strengthen. Here's what MacArthur notes about the use of that term there. The term is used to describe Jesus' resolute determination to go to Jerusalem, although he knew he faced death when he arrived there. It is a word denoting resoluteness, firm courage, an attitude of commitment to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. The time had come. Our Lord knew He had to suffer. And what did He do? Did He flee? He set His face to Jerusalem. I love the last part of what MacArthur said there. An, an attitude of commitment to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. If we're going to endure injustice or persecution or any type of suffering, we, we must be committed to standing firm in the faith no matter how severe our suffering becomes. Well, one thing that James has addressed twice in this letter so far is, is what he calls double-mindedness. This double-mindedness is the, the opposite of standing firm he first used this word to speak of the person who prays and doubts. He prays, but he doesn't really believe wholeheartedly in what he is doing because he doubts that God will answer. He is essentially just going through the motions of prayer. He is not firmly committed to what he is doing. James also uses this word to speak of the person who is living in unrepentant sin, claiming to be a Christian, but befriending the world at the same time, living in spiritual adultery like an unfaithful spouse. What James was addressing there is a person who, in a sense, has one foot in Christianity and one foot in the world. He wants Christ and the friendship of the world. And James says you can't have both because to befriend the world is to make yourself an enemy of God. And one way to look at what James is saying is that the people he was writing to needed to stand firm in the faith. They, they, they didn't want to stand firm. They wanted to put one foot in the world. They are double-minded. Their need was to stand firm. Now, how would this person stand firm in the face of, in the face of suffering if he's double-minded during a time of ease? The person who is not fully committed to following Christ, no matter the cost, is not going to patiently endure persecution. And he's not going to suffer well when he experiences injustice. 
Dear friends, did you count the cost as you came to Christ? Are you thinking to yourself, I will follow Christ as long as it makes my life easy? As long as there is, is no resistance. Again, we only get away with this in America because in many other places, if you, if you profess faith in Christ, you know that could be the end of your life and, and you don't do it falsely. But, but here in America, that might get you some advantage. But if that is you, if you are resolved only to follow Christ in as far as it is easy and good, you will not suffer well. You must have the mentality that I am going to follow Him no matter the cost. If you are not resolved at this very moment to live out your faith, no matter what you go through, it is not likely that you will respond well to injustice or suffering. And let's add to this. Not only must we be resolved to be faithful no matter what, but we must also be alert. We must be on guard. We, we can't stand strong if our heads are in the clouds. Dan Doriani points out that, that soldiers stand firm when they stay ready for battle. We stand firm when someone voices a, a passionate or even angry opinion in our direction and we neither succumb to his bluster nor return anger for anger. Dear saints, do you stay ready for the battle? Are you on guard? Part of the soldiers standing firm is staying ready for the battle. If you are not on guard, ready for spiritual battle, I don't care how strong you are, if the soldier is caught off guard, he will fall. This is the beauty of a sneak attack. They're strong. They're powerful. But you sneak up on them. Why? Because you know that if they are off guard, you have a chance. If you're not on guard, ready for spiritual battle, what happens when injustice or persecution comes upon you like a sneak attack and overtakes you like a hurricane? How will you respond? You probably won't respond well. Let me give you just an, one example of this. How often in your life have you suffered wrong and you responded sinfully to that situation? Or maybe you didn't even respond sinfully, but you, you didn't respond as well as you know you should have. And after that, you say, you, you know, I probably shouldn't have responded that way. And, and this could be something as simple as someone being rude to you. Something so simple. No, nothing major. Somebody was rude to you. They, they say something rude to you, and, and you respond rashly without even thinking about it. And later on, you realize how you responded was wrong, but, but you did not even think about it until after you responded. What, what happened? You were likely off guard. Something happened, or something was said, and you responded based upon impulse with, with no thought of the spiritual significance of what you were about to say. Someone offends you, and you've already responded before you realize this has spiritual significance. Now, I want you to contrast that with with the way you handle a situation when you know you are walking into it. 
Have you ever been in a situation when, when, you, when you know you have to confront someone and you plan on doing it? You, you plan it out so, so you are on guard knowing that they may not respond well and you patiently endure their negative response to you. You anticipate it, this would happen. Let me give you an example. You go out and you share the gospel with someone. What are you prepared for? You're sharing the gospel at a pride festival. What are you prepared for? For people to be nice to you? No. So, so how do you respond when, when, when someone is rude to you in that situation? You don't get outraged and respond sinfully to them. Why? Because of the nature of what you are doing, you are on guard. Your guard is up. You know at that moment, very acutely, I better watch how I respond here. You're on guard. So often the difference between us responding sinfully versus responding well is whether or not we are on guard. Like Doriana said, soldiers stand firm when they stay ready for battle. We are soldiers of Jesus Christ. And there are real spiritual battles taking place and, and nothing would make our enemy happier than to cause us to sin through throwing injustice or persecution at us. What would happen if that employer said, thanks for reaping my field, but I'm not paying you. And those Christians pulled out knives and butchered him. The devil would be clapping his hands. We must watch how we respond. Satan would have been pleased for those men to respond to that crisis, to that, to that injustice, to that suffering in a bad way. You see, if we are to respond well to suffering, James says we must strengthen our hearts. I want you to think of Luther being warned, do not go to Worms. For there are many devils there. And what was Luther's response? I will go. Though there should be there as many devils as tiles on the roof, I will go. His heart was strengthened. He was resolute. And this resoluteness enabled him to say, here I stand, I can do no other. Understanding the, the consequences of that position he was taking. Luther was a man who, who experienced fear, a man who had to think of the, the consequences of not recanting his writing. In fact, when he was told to recant, he said, let me have a day to think about it. He wasn't some superhero. He mustered words softly so that they couldn't hear him. And they told him, speak up, Luther, speak up. And he asked for another day. But in the end, what did he do? He said... Here I stand, I can do no other. A, a man who, who thought about the consequences of not recanting, but he was, he was resolved not to go against his conscience that was bound by the Word of God. He was resolved to remain faithful to Christ, to stand firm in the faith, no matter what the consequences were. This is what it looks like to have a strengthened heart. You say, well, this sounds great. But how do we do this? Isn't this something that God is supposed to do 
for us. After all, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, so that he that is God may establish your heart, same word, blameless in holiness before God and the Father and at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul said God strengthens our hearts and now James is telling his readers to do it. Does God strengthen our hearts? Or is it our responsibility? Yes. Both. We see this tension with many things in the Christian life. We are dependent upon God, but we also have responsibility. In the circles I grew up in, you would often hear the phrase, you need to let go and let God. Anyone ever heard that before? Just in every situation, just just let go and let God. How, How do I deal with this practical problem? Let go and let God. Just don't even worry about it. We don't look at our responsibility when we think that way. This is a ditch we must not fall into. We we are responsible, James says, for strengthening our hearts. He doesn't tell believers here that that God is going to strengthen your heart. He, He literally tells them, strengthen your hearts. You do this. And this is so important for us to understand because we can easily fall into this unbiblical mindset which says I am not going to fight or strive if God wants me to endure he will have to sustain me himself I'm not doing it I can't do it but this gets into what James condemns earlier on in this book do not blame God for your sins and temptations don't say that God is indirectly responsible for your sins because he is sovereign and he could remove you from situations that tempt you If he wanted to, that's blaming God, James says. We can't say if I respond to suffering sinfully, it's God's fault for not giving me the strength to endure. God tempts no one to sin. We are given the command to strengthen our hearts. We have responsibility. Listen, this means that when when situations get difficult and the temptation arises to be impatient and respond sinfully, we are to strengthen our hearts and actively fight against that temptation. When, When trials seek to destroy our faith, we are to fight against that actively, to literally wrestle against it. Have you ever been in a, in a situation where, where you're, you're struggling with temptation and on one side of your head you think to yourself, I really want this. And on the other, you know there, there's a tension that you know I, I should not do this. What are you to do in that situation? You are to strive. You are to wrestle. You are to fight against that. The, the, the Bible speaks of this in a sense of, of, of hand-to-hand combat. Wrestle against sin as though it's hand-to-hand combat. Listen, when, when injustice is done to you and you desire to lash out against the person, you need to strengthen your heart. You need to actively strive against the impulse to act sinfully in anger. We have responsibility. We must strive and fight. We, we, we are not waiting. Listen to this. We are not waiting for God to miraculously make us perfect so that it no longer requires effort to endure suffering. Do we understand that? Get rid of this unbiblical mindset which says, if it requires effort, I must wait on God to change my desires. And if you don't believe that Christians think this way, let me give you one example. Evangelism. 
How many Christians are waiting for God to remove all of their fear before they share the gospel with one person? If God wants me to do this, he will remove my fear. If God wants me to do this, he will make me bold. Because I fear, this must be a sign that this is not what God wants me to do. There's a saying that boldness is a muscle that has to be exercised. We, we exercise boldness by being bold. We, we overcome our fear of sharing the gospel by sharing the gospel. And we strengthen our hearts by practicing being resolute, by practicing standing firm in the faith in difficulty. We, we strengthen our hearts to be able to respond to suffering patiently by striving against sin and our suffering. Fear, again, is not a, is not a reason to, to not do something. We, we all know that. Well, what do we tell kids? Don't, 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 don't you know, not do this. Don't quit because you're, you're afraid because then it becomes easier and easier to do. Well, what are you teaching your kid at that moment? Don't fight. Don't strive. But how many of us live our Christian life that way? Because I'm not perfect in this, this must be an excuse for me to fail. Now let me balance this before people accuse me of giving a self-help speech. We must also be aware of the ditch which says, everything is up to me. I don't need to depend on God. I can stand firm on my own. I'm strong enough. If you think that, dear Christian, you better heed the words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Matthew Henry said, we are most likely to fall when we are most confident of our own strength. Listen, we must seek to strengthen our hearts. We must seek to stand firm in the face of suffering. We must be resolute. We must be on guard. And we must do all of these things understanding that ultimately God is the one who upholds us and helps us and strengthens us. I think MacArthur summarizes this tension well. He says, this is another instance of the profound tension between divine providence and human responsibility that permeates doctrinal truth. Christians are not to let go and let God, but nor are they to view the Christian life as one of legalistic self-effort. Instead, they are to live as if everything depends on them, knowing that it all depends on God. In the midst of that temptation, somebody is persecuting you. Somebody's doing something wrong against you, and, and, and you experience this suffering, and, and you want to respond sinfully. You need to fight that temptation as though it depends on you. Because what happens if you just give in? You sin. So you fight it as though it depends on you, but at the same time, you recognize that, that unless God upholds you, unless God gives you the strength, you will fall. But we have to be careful about making too much of a distinction between these things. Because we don't want to fall into the ditch of, I can do everything myself. But we also don't want to fall into the ditch of just let go and let God. We are to strengthen our hearts 
That is to, to strive to be firm in the faith, wrestle to be resolute. As hard as it is, we are to seek to do this as though it depends on us, but recognize that God provides the strength. This is the way in which we stand firm in the face of suffering. This is a difficult task that James lays before us. And understanding the difficulty of it, James gives us motivation as he did in verse 7. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why is he saying this? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. He tells us that the key to strengthening our hearts is hope. This is the key. Hope. You can watch those movies with different epic battles. And what happened when you see, when you see, when you're getting defeated, you're in despair, and then all of a sudden you, you see friendly armies on both sides encroaching. What does it do to you? It gives you hope to rise up and fight. Without hope, we don't strengthen our hearts. Calvin said, we ought then to gather strength that we may become hardened, that is resolute, and this cannot be better attained than by hope. There's no better way for us to be able to endure suffering patiently and faithfully than to have hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in that verse that, that hope produces steadfastness. Different steadfastness is a strengthened heart, resoluteness, an established heart. Therefore, to have a strengthened heart, we need hope. And James says we have that hope, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's simply saying like he did in verse 7, that, that Christ is going to return one day. We have hope in that. We, we only have to suffer for so long. We only have to strengthen our hearts and strive against sinful responses for, for so long. A day is coming when, when, when we no longer have to worry about how we respond to injustice or suffering or persecution for those things will cease to exist. The battle is not forever. This is the greatest hope that anyone could ever have. We're not to be escapist, neglecting our duties on earth because of a desire to avoid suffering, but we are also not to despise the glorious hope that has been provided for us. This is fuel for us. Hope is essential to the Christian life. Not only does it help us to be steadfast, but it also helps us to be bold. Not only does it allow us to respond to suffering with patience, but it also helps us to be bold in the face of suffering, which I would say is also related to having a strengthened heart. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? Since we have such a hope, we are bold. I love what Piper says about this. If you are not bold in your witness... If you are not courageous and risk-taking in your ventures of righteousness, if you are not open and straightforward in your speech, it may be that your hope 
is defective. Perhaps you are hoping in the wrong things to make your future happy. Perhaps you have never really thought seriously about the relationship between the strength of your hope and the boldness of your service to Christ. But Paul says there is very, there's a very close relationship. Since we have such a hope, we are bold. There's a close relationship between the strength of our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the boldness of our walk with Christ and the boldness of our service for Christ. If we don't have hope, we will be cowards who sin in the face of suffering. Not only will we sin in our failure to endure suffering patiently, but perhaps we will even deny our Lord in the process. Men who go to the stake to burn don't go without hope. Men without hope, we can't. If our hope in the coming of the Lord is strong, we will be steadfast, resolute. And not only will we endure suffering patiently, but we will be able to be bold witnesses for Christ in the midst of our greatest suffering and our greatest persecution. Hope in Christ allows you, like Peter and John, to share the gospel with the magistrate as they are persecuting you. Our Lord has died for us, shedding His blood on the cross. He has given us a, a righteousness with which we can stand before the Father. He has secured for us an eternal inheritance. And, and one day He will return in glory. And when He does, He will punish all evil. He will right all wrong. He, he, will, he will punish all injustice. And, and He will give us glorified bodies and glorified minds in a perfect world that will never experience suffering again. May this hope we have in Christ enable us with God's help to have established, strengthened hearts that patiently endure suffering and always remain faithful to Christ. Let us pray.